0: your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to take it and turn to the book of Mark. We are continuing our journey through this book, looking at an abridged, if you will, or a shorter version of what Jesus did while he was here on the earth. You know, I've been talking a little bit this morning in different ways about the difference in Christianity versus everything else in the world, and especially other religions. You know what the difference really is? besides Jesus grace grace in Christ alone grace calls and grace saves now people prefer to earn their way to heaven or to win it in some sort of lottery they think that with their they're winning or they're on the the deserving side of instead of trusting the one who offers heaven freely but Jesus this morning in this passage in Mark chapter 2 is going to highlight the big difference that there is between the rest of the world and the kingdom of God. Like I've said already, Mark is a testimony written by John Mark of the New Testament that narrates Christ's life and his ministry. And this, this book brings to light the vastly different means by which God plans to save humanity. He's showing in, in a vastly array of events that Jesus will change the reality of the world at that time and forever. As a matter of fact, our, our, uh, our time with Jesus in this, in this kind of setting, it started with a demoniac at Capernaum synagogue. Then came a leper that Jesus touched very bad in those days. And then he forgave sins by telling a paralytic he was forgiven. And now Jesus is really going to confront the absence of grace that's in Judaism at that time. So let's read this passage. Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away and the old cloth from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for what Jesus is going to demonstrate to us this morning in that it's all about grace, the grace of God that reached down to save humanity. And it is entering into the world of first century Judaism And it's going to be a stark wake-up call, and I pray for our hearts this morning that we will remember that it's all of grace and not of our own doing. We ask your blessing on this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jesus really demonstrates that his gospel is a new revelation of the grace of God, that Jesus Christ brings a gospel of grace that crosses all former barriers to restoration. So what does Jesus do that upsets all these former barriers and these, the, the former order of Judaism? Well, we're going to see that. He has three expressions here that bring on the new reality, the new reality of his gospel. First of all, Jesus calls the unseen. Look at verses 13 through 14. Jesus calls the unseen. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by he saw Levi, the son of Alphea, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now Jesus is taking a stroll by the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, whichever word you want to use and whichever word your translation might have used, and he's teaching as he goes along, sort of a rabbi thing that they did back then. But there also could be a chance where he stopped somewhere and just kind of had like a Sermon on the Mount kind of discourse. But there was a crowd following, the whole crowd, Mark describes it, which basically means there was a large group that was continually following Jesus after, he was, after he'd gone across Galilee and was back in Capernaum. So this crowd is following him, they're listening to Jesus' teaching, and then Jesus comes beside, at some point, a tax collector's booth. And it's most likely on a highway that ran from Damascus down to Egypt. So it wasn't really on the seashore. It was probably off a little bit, like a main highway, like some of the highways that parallel the beaches of our country. And he was walking along that road, and that's where he saw the tax collector's booth. And Jesus sees Levi doing his job. He sees Levi. Now, we know him as Matthew. He's referred to in all the list of disciples as Matthew. Um, but in two accounts, he's referred to as Levi. Levi. We don't know what the real specification of his name is. Levi is usually from the Levitical line, the the son Levi of of, uh, Jacob. And so he could have been a Levite. But Matthew is also a name that he goes by, and we just really don't know how he got two names. But he's known to us as Matthew, the author of the first gospel. Why is Levi unseen? That's probably the question that I kept kept seeing this in in the passage this week. Why is Levi not seen by people? Well, here's why. Tax collector. Tax collector. Now, none of us like the IRS. None of us would like to be visited by the IRS. And I have been, and it's not a lot of fun. But tax collector structure. Okay, let me tell you what. This goes on in all the Roman Empire, but it goes on in other other. Types of conquest as well. The occupying country wants to tax the people of the occupied country to get a tribute, to get taxes. And so there were all kinds of taxes that Rome levied on first century Palestine and the rest of its empire. Bridges, roads, income, goods, even the livestock. Even if you have a a livestock born to you by your two animals, you still got to pay a tax on it of some sort. The, the, the list of taxes went on, kind of like our IRS code. It was a myriad of taxes. And because tax collectors were not governed by a code like our tax collectors are, extortion was rampant. They could extort more money out of the, the citizens. Now, more than likely, Levi works for a man who owns that particular tax booth. That was kind of how the the hierarchy was set up. Rome would hire certain people to establish tax booths in certain areas along certain places. And so more than likely, the tax booth that Matthew, Levi, worked in, he didn't own. Somebody else did. And he just worked there. But it doesn't matter to the Jews. They hated him. They hated all tax collectors. Because they were collecting money for the emperor. And they were allowed to collect as much as they wanted, as long as they paid their quota to Rome. So that's, see, that's how extortion starts. And if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, it really makes it clear that Zacchaeus had extorted a lot of money from people. Well, the Jews hated them. Tax collectors were not allowed in the synagogue. Tax collectors were not allowed in the temple. No matter what offering they brought, you couldn't accept an offering from a tax collector. Even if they wanted to put two coins, two copper coins, as the widow did, in the plate outside the temple proper, they wouldn't accept it. This is what they were taught. If they enter or touch anything, it's considered unclean. That's the way they viewed tax collectors. They were like a leper almost without the disease. No one goes into their house and they can't come into your house or they'll make your whole house unclean just by being there. They don't even have to touch anything. I mean, it was the ultimate in taboo. Matter of fact, rabbis taught back then that lying to the tax collectors was okay with God. To get away from the extortion, to get away from, and we seem to think that too sometimes with the IRS, but getting away from the extortion and the abuse of the system, the rabbis would allow the Jews to lie to the tax collector. They were a separated group of people kind of like collaborators to the enemy in a war. They were just viewed as traitors. And the Jews would outright ignore them, not talk to them. Even if they were paying taxes, they wouldn't talk and say anything to them. They were a hated group, even by their family. But, I love the buts, but Jesus saw him by grace. Jesus saw him sitting there collecting taxes, doing his job, and there's nothing that indicates that Levi or Matthew were, was extorting the people. Nothing indicates that. But they, he looked at him. Jesus selected him. Jesus chose him and called him from the life of a tax collector, the life of crime to a new life of selfless service to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, (laughs) I want you to understand something. Levi had probably never been befriended or chosen by anybody for a long time. Jesus looked past his crimes as a tax collector, whatever they were, and other crimes that he committed and sins, and he found a disciple. He found a disciple, and it was all by grace. Matthew wasn't some great tax collector that, oh, I need that guy on my team. No, he was probably just as bad as some of the others. Jesus called him, and Levi left all of Rome's gold laying there on the table, and I'm sure it was taken care of by the guards that are around, but he left it. He left the, he left the, the gold, the wealth, the security of a job for the Savior who would call him friend. And unlike the fisherman who could eventually go back to fishing, Matthew would never be able to go back to be a Roman tax collector. Because then Rome considered him a traitor because he walked away. Jesus called Levi from an obscure tax collector to a prominent apostle of the gospel of grace. It's a great story. You know, if you ever been on the playground and, as a kid and you didn't get picked for the team, or you were the last one picked for the team, or you got selected for a job or a project, or you weren't selected for... I mean, just that you can get the emotions that Matthew went through every day. Nobody talks to me. Nobody picks me. Nobody looks at me. Nobody interacts with me. I can't go and do my religion that I want to do. The key is always someone sees us and picks us. And someone saw Matthew and picked him. Christ Jesus chose Levi specifically, I think, because the Jews would never have chosen him. And the reason, I think, is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd ask you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to follow along. We're going to look at verses 26 to 31 because those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who have decided to follow Christ, we have been chosen like that. Because the world wouldn't have chosen us necessarily. Paul explains and gives his perspective on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting with verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from that, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written let no one, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We're chosen for the fact that no one else might choose us see grace chose Levi Levi wasn't special grace chose Paul Paul if you know anything about Paul you know why in the world and see grace alone chooses us we're not anything special that's why we're saved by grace God chose you for a life of service to him Now, the question I have for you this morning is, who are you choosing to serve? Who are you choosing to reach? Who are you choosing to see that isn't seen? What specific people are you ignoring with the gospel? And I'm here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, do not assume you know whether they'll accept the gospel or not if you have not talked to them. Do not assume they will not listen. That is not our job. Our job is not to decide who responds, but to just tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Present the Christ who chose you. Present the Christ who chose you from a sin-soaked life and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Tell them about Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Look around you. Find someone that you think might not be seen by God by others and and see them, and tell them Jesus forgives them, and tell them how they can be forgiven. Tell them that he loves them. Take time to see them, like Jesus saw Levi. So Jesus saw Levi. Even in eternity past, he saw him, and now he calls him. And now Jesus sees many like Levi and offers forgiveness. That's point number two this morning. Jesus Connects with the unforgiven. Look at verses 15 through 17. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You ever notice when a person gets saved in Scripture, he tends to invite strangers into his home? You ever notice that? Zacchaeus did it. I mean it's just it just seems to be a common thing. Let's throw a party and celebrate the fact that I have been forgiven, I have found the Savior, I have found the Messiah. And he's doing that. Levi does that. He throws a party. Jesus is there. And Levi invites all his tax collector buddies. Everybody from the IRS came. No, I don't know if it was everybody. But everybody was invited. And he invited other sinners. Now, let's look at that term a second because Mark is using... Current vernacular. He's not trying to help us create two categories of people, but he's using what the vernacular was used, the words were used back then by the Pharisees and all, so that we, the readers can know what they're talk, he's talking about. Sinners, though, in that use would be those who are obviously breaking God's law. So, people who commit adultery, prostitutes, people who have murdered, thieves, thugs, all those kind of people probably were associating with the tax collectors, and the reason is because none of them were seen by. The Jews. None of them were seen by the Jewish religious establishment. They were all kind of pushed together. Even if they weren't of the same crime family, they were definitely pushed together. So that's who the sinners are. That's, the tax collectors are obvious. These would be moral violators of the Torah in the, in the Pharisees' eyes. And the Pharisees despised him. They even had oral law set up against them. And in this social context, Jesus, a rabbi, see, the Pharisees were beginning to recognize Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher, someone to be respected a little bit. So Jesus as a rabbi, he should avoid contact with all these people. I mean, the disciples were probably just common people, common Israelites, um, but they were still common people to the religious elite back then. But these scribes of the Pharisees, these are the ones that we've learned about already that teach the law but they really don't. They teach writings about the law. They teach what some rabbi wrote many years before or what some rabbi said, and it's an oral pass down of tradition. They didn't, everybody back then didn't walk around with a Bible in their hand or 20 Bibles at their house. They, they just had to depend on what was taught at the synagogue. The Pharisees were always putting up what I would call boundaries around the law of God. Now, let me give you a little history on the Pharisees. It started after the exile, and when they came back from Babylon and Assyria and, and, and Persian Empire, they came back to Palestine, back to the Promised Land. These people were leaders and priests, and they were, they were, they were, their, their intentions were meant well-meaning. They meant to keep the law protected. They knew that they had been exiled because they had disobeyed God's law. So they were going to put up fences around God's law to protect people from accidentally breaking God's law. Well intended. But unfortunately, over the years, these regulations to keep people from breaking the law became their own law. They became their own sense of rules that everybody had to obey. And we're going to confront some of those later when Jesus talks to them. Not today, but later on. And so anybody who violated their verbal, oral rules and regulations, the Pharisees despised and labeled them. Sinners, tax collectors, whatever. Anybody who spurned their rules, they were labeled. And they were called sinners. But Jesus didn't see them that way. Jesus started connecting with these sinners over food, which violated every, every moray that they had for rabbis. It was like no, that's taboo. You don't do that. But Jesus was connecting to them over food. He was offering fellowship to them. Reclining at a table, which is how they ate, a table low to the ground, they just reclined at it and enjoyed a meal together. And it's usually a long process of eating a meal together. So Jesus wasn't just, you know, eat and run kind of guy. He was there, spending time with them. And the scribes asked Jesus' disciples, why does he do that well those four guys didn't know remember we just got four so far um, he probably didn't ask Levi they didn't ask Levi because Levi was probably hosting the the whole party <laughs> Peter Andrew James and John had no clue why Jesus was eating with sinners but hey it's a free meal we're good with it you know we like it we're hanging out with people we we can kind of relate to but these guys didn't know so Jesus heard them And he answered with a metaphor. And that's our memory verse this month. He says, only the sick go to a doctor because only the sick know they need a doctor. The well don't ever realize it. The well don't ever realize that they need it. See, Levi invited all the people he could. I don't know that all came. But whoever did come heard the gospel of grace and saw what Levi testified to. But see, the, the Pharisees, and they never saw, these scribes never saw their need for grace. As a matter of fact, in that, phrase, in that saying of Jesus, they're the self-righteous in that sentence. I didn't come to call the self-righteous because you don't think you need grace. I come to call sinners because they know they need grace. See, Jesus heals the greatest sickness that's ever plagued planet Earth, unforgiven sins. Unforgiven sins. It's what what sends people to hell. It's the the, the, the dividing line of all humanity. Unforgiven sin. See, many of these people were following the Messiah now because he administered healing grace for their souls. And Jesus connected with them on that ultimate spiritual level that we all need forgiveness by God. And, and they're realizing something. It's, it's like abuse victims. When you, if, when you hear about abuse, abuse victims, there's a lot of times they carry with them the idea that it's their fault. And when they finally realize it's not their fault that they were abused, you should see their face. It lights up. They're, 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 the guilt comes off their shoulders. You can almost see it. And that's what these sinners and tax collectors are realizing is that we're sinners and tax collectors, but we don't have to be that way forever God will forgive there's a proverb that speaks to this righteous crowd in Proverbs chapter 30 verse 11 through 13 it says there is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother there's a generation that is pure in its own eyes yet is not washed from its filth there is a generation how haughty its eyes and pretentious its looks See, Jesus died to save only one type of human, sinners. Who falls into that category? Everybody. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. No one is righteous. No, not one. All of humanity at birth is sick with the disease of sin. The only remedy is forgiveness by God and God alone. He is the great physician. I hope you realize this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ that you fit in that category that that you've come to terms with your status before a holy God and that you'll connect with Jesus and find the full, complete and eternal forgiveness you need. It is the most freeing solution that you can find in life. Those of us who have been connected to Christ who are born again are you reaching out to those who have not found forgiveness and showing them forgiveness? That's what we're called to do. That's what he called Levi to do, be an apostle and a messenger. See, those of us who are forgiven by Jesus Christ, we're not better than anybody else. We're not better than those who still suffer under the weight of guilt. We who are forgiven are just beggars that found some bread, and now we're supposed to tell other beggars where to find that bread. So tell someone. Jesus connected with the sinners and the unforgiven we should too. So Jesus called the unseen, Levi. He connected with the unforgiven, the tax collectors and sinners. And now he's got to instruct the religious leaders in some new truth here. Point number three, Jesus corrects the unawakened, unawakened. Verses 18 through 22. I want you to see how unawakened these guys are. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So the, the Pharisees are now trying to trap Jesus a little bit by bringing up this falsely pious controversy over fasting. But, but in the course of this, Jesus introduces a whole new view of God and the whole plan of redemption. See, the Jew, Jewish fast, it's a good discipline. Um, we, just, we just did it this past Thursday, or I hope some of you did. And But by law, there was only one fast required, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's the only time it was required by the law of God. Now, they added four fasts after the exile, hopefully to keep them more humble and committed to Christ, I mean, to, committed to God, and then now the Pharisees at this point in, in, in first century Palestine, they, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Usually Mondays and Thursdays. Who would have known? There was no requirement except their requirement. And, and to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, fasting is not the issue here. They're using that as trying to dig and trap Jesus. I mean, it's a good and private, quiet discipline to have in our life to strengthen our faith. You want to see more about that Look in Matthew chapter 6. See, they wanted to quarrel with Jesus over traditions. They wanted to quarrel with Jesus and pick a fight over their pride and their position as Pharisees or scribes of Pharisees. So Jesus addressed their concerns with three illustrations he gives. These are three illustrations from real life. The sad part is they won't understand any of this. But we're going to try to understand it this morning. Jesus changes everything they understood about the old covenant because he's ushering in a new covenant, which we just talked about during the Lord's Supper. First of all, he uses the wedding example. They're not going to fast during the wedding ceremony when the bridegroom is there because it's celebration time. It's not a time to mourn, it's not a time to be sorrowful. So that's what he's the first one in. And they miss the fact that who is the bridegroom in this metaphor? Jesus is the groom. He's the person that is special. Now, Old Testament Messiah prophecy, he doesn't use the, the connection of bridegroom and Messiah together per se, but they talk of a wedding banquet in Isaiah 25. And his presence with the sinners and tax collectors, I mean, imagine what they're hearing for the first time. You are can be forgiven. They're celebrating. They're celebrating. So there's no reason to fast. Now, Jesus says when he's gone, his followers will fast. And today we celebrate his life on planet earth and what he did for us with a fast looking for his next coming. But that's what we do. But the son of God was on earth, on earth was a time of high celebration, not a time to fast. The second one is he uses this sewing old cloth on a new cloth on old garments. Um, and if you don't know anything about sowing, like me, then it, it doesn't, you're just kind of like, okay, I guess so. But Jesus is speaking more generally about the age, the new age of fulfillment of the prophecy of redemption. Okay? He's wanting to communicate that there is a new age present, an age of fulfilling all the prophecies about the Messiah. See, they didn't, they didn't see, these guys didn't see anything wrong with their interpretation of God's law and their boundaries and regulations they'd set up around it. They didn't see anything wrong with their interpretation and their form of atonement for sin. They didn't see anything wrong with it. They thought, works for us, we're happy with it. So they're trying to make the old covenant ways, the things in, in, in Genesis through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all that, they're trying to make that fit over what Jesus is here to do, and it's just not going to work. They're trying to make the old covenant laws and sacrifices fit the new kingdom of God, which Jesus announced that he was here to teach about. It'll just make things worse. See, the gaping hole in the old way is the fact that future sins were never forgiven by the old way of atonement. Future sins were never forgiven, just what you had committed. So you brought your bull, your goat, or your lamb and sacrificed it for your sins that you had committed you couldn't do a preparatory or a, a, a preemptive sacrifice. Future sins were not forgiven. So no matter how much fasting, no, much, how matter, no matter how much sacrificing, segregating, no matter how much good deeds they did, they could never take care of future sins. So that's how it doesn't fit. That's the gaping hole in their, in their law is that there's, there's future sins and how do we take care of them once and for all? Well, Jesus makes all the difference to that. To how one believes and acts in faith, he makes all the difference. And he fulfills all the old ways as he brings in the new way. And then this third example, the new wine, and probably most of us Baptists aren't familiar with how to make wine, so it might have been a little strange to us. But uh, Jesus gives, it's really a more vivid picture, I think, of how the old and the new do not mix. They don't really go together in terms of how they're going to save souls how they're going to forgive souls. The Pharisees are trying to use old containers for new truth, and that's just not going to work. It's going to ruin both. So I'll give you a little quick lesson on the wine process. Wine was fermented. Wine is fermented. Grapes are fermented to produce wine, I should say. And it's usually done in vats, big containers of some sort. But at some point, they think it's fermented enough, they put it in the wine skins, which looks like a leather bag with a little spout and a plug. And and they put it in that bag to let it finish fermenting in a sense, but basically it's ready to drink. But during that last part of fermentation that goes on inside that bag, the bag stretches with the pressure of the air and the acid and everything building up in there. Well, new wineskins are flexible. Old wineskins are not. Um, Sort of like my my ligaments and my bones as I get old. They're not flexible anymore. So that's the process. Well, Jesus is illustrating that the grace of the gospel does not go in a prejudicial, condemnatory heart. That the, the, the gospel of grace doesn't fit in their old, covenantal, legalistic minds. It just won't fit because it's of grace. It needs new hearts to go into, which we, we, we know from the Old Testament God's going to change their heart. New hearts can accept the grace offered in Christ but these Pharisees are just ignorant of the new covenant. They see and hear, but they do not perceive or understand what Jesus is talking about. There's a new covenant coming, the new age of fulfillment. Now, thanks be to God that we've understood this, that by the Holy Spirit, we've grasped the gospel of grace with open and receptive hearts to receive from him forgiveness because salvation is from the Lord. You know, all the gospels quote a version of this passage from Ezekiel 12:2. son of man, you will live in the midst of the rebellious house who have eyes to see, but do not see ears to hear, but do not hear for they are a rebellious house. And Jesus is already beginning to point that out with these illustrations. Jesus came to change hearts to hear his message not try to fit his message in old hearts. He corrected them, but they wouldn't hear it. See, many people today think they've got this this afterlife thing figured out. They, They know what's coming next. They know what happens after this. They've got it figured out. Yet most of them have no historical or evidential or credible basis for their version of eternity. They have nothing really to base it on. Their definitions of sexuality, love, equality, righteousness, justice, tolerance, it comes out of a depraved and unawakened mind because they've not picked up this word, the book, and read it and seen the light that will illuminate that to them. But we do, as believers in Christ, we've seen what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. He taught for three years the only truth that anyone needs for eternity. God loved the world so much and knew that the only way to give them heaven was to make them righteous in his eyes. He sent his son, Jesus, to die in humanity's place for the sins of those who would believe in him. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. That was our memory verse from last month, remember? Forgiveness is available by the blood of Jesus Christ and his alone. And I'm telling you that Jesus is here to awaken your mind and heart to his truth, his way, and his life. Jesus sees your sin. He sees it. He doesn't wince. He doesn't back up. He doesn't retreat. He sees your sin and your evil heart. And Jesus can connect with your unforgiven soul. Jesus will forgive you of it all. There's nothing outside his ability to forgive if you ask him and want it. So believe and repent. It's throughout, scattered throughout the Bible, Old Testament New. Believe and repent. Reject all other forms of salvation and believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, today, right now, you can do that right now. You don't have to wait for anything. Don't delay any longer. Wake up to the truth. The Pharisees didn't, and most of them would never. But Jesus calls us. And he connects with us for those of us who need and want forgiveness, which is all of humanity needs it. His truth corrects all other forms of faith. So now what are you going to do? I hope you're going to believe. I hope you're going to remember that grace is available. Like I said at the beginning, it's the one thing that separates our Christianity, our version of faith from everything else. Grace calls us from dark to light connects us to forgiveness and corrects, corrects our self-righteous thinking that we can get there on our own. If you're one of the unseen this morning, I would love to chat with you about being seen. Jesus would love to see you. He would love to save your soul. And I would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing in a new age of fulfilling of all the prophecies. Thank you for showing us this, even though the people that heard this for the first time didn't understand. You have given us the grace and the mercy and the the understanding from your spirit to see it. May those of us who have trusted you as our Savior go into all the world and teach and preach and spread the gospel to find the unseen, to find those who have not connected to the Savior of the world and introduce them. We pray for your help in doing that, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing to God about opening our eyes to see him.